Hello and welcome back to the Disruptors podcast. We have a fascinating and deep dive conversation right here on the show today. We've got a special one. So Rob is interviewed by Cullen from the Central Club podcast. He grills Rob on how he really made his millions and what it takes to be a successful entrepreneur. For those of you who don't know who Cullen is, he is the host of the Central Club podcast. He was a former heroin addict, but he's been several years sober now. He's turned his life around and he opens up and talks about how he went from an addict to his path to recovery. Do me a favor once you've listened to this episode, head over to the Central Club podcast, go subscribe. They're on YouTube and wherever you're listening to this uh, audio podcast and go give some uh, love to Cullen. He's an absolute brilliant guy. He's done a documentary on the Lad Bible YouTube channel if you want to hear more from him. He's an absolute brilliant, fascinating guy. So let's just get straight into this. But remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. What's going on, people? Welcome to the Central Club. This episode is brought to you by Reinspire Printing and Boss Security. If you haven't already, make sure you hit that like button, subscribe to the club, and hit the bell button to be notified of future content. Today is very, very different. I'm really excited. This is the first Central Club podcast we have done over a Zoom. Um, I did try to get this guy down in Cardiff, but he, he, you know, he is in demand quite a lot. He's a very busy man. He is constantly all over my For You page on Instagram, TikTok. And, you know, a, a very, very fascinating character. Some of the people he's interviewed, um, you know, at the highest of heights, really. And, you know, I really want to get into, into more of, of who this man is. Um, he is a business entrepreneur, um, an author, a podcaster of two podcasts. But the thing that fascinated me the most was he's in the Guinness World Book of Records for the longest public speech at 47 hours. And when I said that, I said, do you mean like, you know, is this over a couple of days? And he went, no. It's literally like um, start Monday, and I think Wednesday night, I think he said. So very fascinating, and uh, well, I must introduce him. His name is Rob Moore. How are you, Rob? All good in the hood, my friend. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Pleasure, and please don't take it personally. I didn't come to Cardiff. Um, I start to feel sick when I get outside the M25. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that lovely ring road protects you, yeah? <laughs> Have you ever been to Cardiff? I don't think I have, but um, let's catch up. Let's do a, um, when you have an anniversary episode, like a 500th ah. or a big one, yeah. I'll come down, we'll make a bit of a trip of it, and um, you got my word on that. I'm going to hold you to that, mate. Um, I am coming to London soon, and I'm, I'm going to start coming more often, so I will definitely uh, drop in sometime as well. Um, but yeah, thank you for coming. Um, the first thing I wanna I wanna really say to you is is what is with the dress attire? What's the story behind these diamante studded um are they wrist what, what are they? Braces? <laughs> yeah. What is it? Yeah, so if you look down on my comments, gun holster, back brace, backpack, bondage, you know, um so when I was forty years old probably two days before my birthday, um, I watched a documentary called McQueen. And I love watching all the business documentaries, you know, the fashion and the icon documentaries, because I think you, um, you know, you can model the traits of the greats and stand on the shoulders of giants. So I, I generally don't watch trash. I watch biographies and business shows on TV. And this documentary came out and Alexander McQueen um, hung himself when he was 40 um, 
long story, but basically was probably Britain's best ever, in my opinion, fashion designer. And from a very young age achieved really big highs in fashion, working some, for some of the biggest fashion houses in his early 20s. Set up his own brand, Alexander McQueen. Was really disruptive, um, which is the theme of my show, as you know. And um, was bold and brave and embraced darkness. And he said, look, I don't care if people love me or hate me. I want them to feel something. And when I finished this documentary two days before my 40th birthday, bearing in mind he was 40 when he committed suicide, I just laid there in my bed for probably an hour. And that was one moment that really shook my world. So I decided to buy no other fashion other than McQueen, honour McQueen, try and maybe, look, I can't say I'm living his brand. He's obviously a legend and, you know, I'm just a guy from Peterborough. But um, I am getting well known for it now. And even if they never pay me a penny for the rest of my life, I will champion the McQueen brand forever. Because when I get behind a brand, I get very obsessive. Um, it's also memorable. Mm. No one else wears this stuff, probably because it's too metrosexual for most people. I imagine if I wore this in Cardiff, I wouldn't be coming back. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just it's just a you're, thing you're I guess I made London, my own. Man. Yeah. Oh no, it's it's really fascinating, and and I think a lot of people get you know impacted with certain documentaries, biographies. I know like the Kanye West and the Jay Zs are the classics now with like the younger generation, but yeah, really fascinating. And I you know I just I didn't know what it was. I thought I have to ask him, you know, and and it's what you said in there that leads me on to my next question about you know he was disruptive, and that's the name of the podcast. Can you give me a bit of a backstory of, of, of why you are so disruptive? Well, I just never fit in. I couldn't fit in in anything. Um, I just couldn't. I don't know why. And I always tried. I always tried to get good grades, be a good boy, do what I'm told. But, you know, I'm taller than most people. I'm louder than most people. Anywhere I've ever gone... I just always was the guy that stuck out for the right or wrong reasons. So it's not like I'm disruptive because I'm Uber or Airbnb, you know, or I'm a billion dollar unicorn. That's, that's one definition of disruptive or disruptor. For me, it's just didn't fit in, did the opposite to everyone else. What I like, no one else liked. And what everyone else liked, I didn't like. And I always felt like a bit of an outsider. And for probably 27 years of my life, I always tried to get on the inside and to fit in and have people like me and have people accept me and have people appreciate me. And I either didn't get that, and so it felt empty, or when I did get it, I felt like a bit of a whore. Or I think you have to say sex worker now so you don't get cancelled. Yeah, but you know, yeah, I felt yeah. like an emotional sex worker where I'd sold myself out pretending to be someone else. So becoming an entrepreneur age 27... Um, Callum was the best thing for me in my whole life, obviously other than my wife and kids, because I could express myself and be myself and be rebellious mm. and be disruptive and not get ostracised or kicked out or fired. In fact, the more disruptive I was, the more money I would make. So mm. I guess misfits, rebe you know, rebels, disruptors, kids that were naughty at school, there's hope for all of us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I... Um... I, I say it all the time. I have to be careful when I do it, but, you know, maybe I'll beat your record one day at public speaking. I've been doing a lot of public speaking recently. 
um, um, some with the police force as well. And one of the things I try and do is 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 paint that picture that it's never too late to change. Um, there is hope after you know whatever your trauma may be, whether it's addiction, whether it's crime, what what whatever it is. Um, but you got to be careful. I, in my sense, it's like you've just got to be careful of not promoting that. You know, For, of course, to be an entrepreneur, you know, promoted to the hills, but. Whenever I kind of say it's never too late, you can do whatever you want. I don't really want someone thinking, okay, so I can go and kill someone and I can still come out of jail and be this, you know, I'm trying not to promote the bad in it. It's, it's a very fine line, I feel, which is quite hard to um, kind of promote sometimes. But why was it then at 27, you, you decided to break free from, you could say, being a normal person to becoming an entrepreneur because the way you describe it, it's as if it is like coming out as being gay or something. It's like you are being free from something. I become an entrepreneur and my life changed. Like what, why is that? Yeah. Um, there's two things in there, I think to answer, but actually if it's all right, um, I want to throw it back at you. Okay. Um, because we come from different worlds and you know, this is why I love doing these kind of conversations. And yeah. in, in my world, you're kind of weird if you're not an entrepreneur. But in your world, I think it's the opposite where you're kind of weird if you are. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting you said you want to be careful about promoting you can be and do anything and it's never too late in case people do the wrong things. But I would challenge you on that because, you know, I don't think maybe we'd be doing this if you didn't have that amazing story of overcoming addiction. Yeah. And I would also say that sometimes people try and be careful about how they put themselves out in the world because they're scared about what people will think about them. And so actually what they're doing is holding back who they really are. So have you got any thoughts on that? And can you, um, can you just put my listeners in the picture because you know, I understand you had a pretty bad <laughs> former life before you're a yeah. podcast legend. Yeah, so I think I totally agree with you. Um, I, I think that's one of the biggest things that I try and champion is this, you know, it's never too late. Change that perception of someone, giving them that, we say second chance, but, you know, it was my 51st chance. Uh, you, you know what I mean? I think the thing that I don't want to do is say to kids that you can be a drug dealer, it's okay, and you will still be able to get a job after that. That's what I'm trying to be careful of. Um because <laughs> it is, that's, that's what it is. People see my past life and they think, some people get jealous. And I think, why are you jealous of me? I was a heroin addict for your listeners. Um, you know, I just think some people can be very envious of that and think, how is this possible that this person can do all this wrong in his life, rob all these people, hurt all these people and be able to get out the other side and, and live the positive side. So I try not to promote that side of it. But I agree on most of it. I really do. For the people who are listening, yeah, I'm from Cardiff and I um, I spent all my adult life really. It's only been the last two years that I'm in recovery and this is the longest time I've been in recovery. I've tried many times, but um, yeah, at the age of 17, I got into uh, ad ad addiction really. Started off with cannabis and within a year, I'm, I'm fully hooked to heroin on a methadone script at 18 and uh, yeah, just living a chaotic life in and out of prison. Um, getting up to all sorts, Rob, really. And um, I really ripped my life off. I never ever thought that I would have a conversation like this. I never even thought I'd ever 
have my family accept me back into life. Everything I would say to my family, it doesn't matter what it was, it was a lie to them. Anything that come out of my mouth, they just they just shrug it off. They just didn't believe me. And to even have a conversation with my father, a simple one like, what are you doing tomorrow? And me being able to tell him what I'm doing tomorrow and for him to believe me is like, I never thought I'd ever have that. That's how bad it was. So... Yeah, that's that's where I am in life. That's where I was in my life. Where I am now, I am I am now um, coming up to three years clean. Um, I'm obviously the host and founder of the Central Club, which is it's tough coming out of Cardiff as a podcaster. You know, it's <laughs> I think you get better opportunities in London, but at the same time, I do say that we do get good pickings because some of the Welsh legends that we we have had is is been because we're Welsh, you know. So. But then you look at someone like James English, who's a jock, and and, and he's doing really well, you know. So, um, I, I, you know, we've got the Central Club, which is starting to take off, and and then we, you know, I'm a full time drug worker as well, so I'm out, I'm literally still out in the in the community, in the trenches, I like to say, you know. Um, I want to keep myself grounded. I think a lot of people who are in addiction, people who come out of addiction, and and when I say addiction, I'm talking specifically heroin, opioids, um because there's many alcoholics out there who turn their lives around and I really appreciate that and I champion that. Opioids is is a different story, a different kettle of fish and it's very hard, very rare that you get success stories out of it. So when you get people who do come out that other side, for them to come out and be open about it is 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 a rarity. I know countless people who have come through the other side and and don't want to men- they want to forget about that life. They're married now and their their wives don't even know that they were once addicted to hardcore drugs. They want to leave that life behind. I suppose when you're working full time in Domino's for 20 years, you don't really want to go and sit in Domino's on your break time. And it's a similar thing with um addiction. You, you want to leave that life behind. So when you find someone who wants to stay in that life and 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 share their stories as honest as possible and also try and help guide others it's a rarity so i have been really successful in my job i've climbed up and it's i love doing it i really really love doing what i do and i want to keep doing that i want to hopefully one day incorporate the central club with with what i do um but finding that kind of formula has been quite tough at the moment can i ask you one question on that then um what was different about the last time you quit to all the other times you quit? Because you're three years in recovery, so let's say that's the successful quit, but you probably tried to quit 50 other times. Yeah. What's different this time? Yeah, so I think it's, it's, it's got to be within you, you know? Something just switches in you. Um, because I give my I give other things too much credit. It's me. I changed, but there has been there's there's like an element of things the same as there was an element of things why I got into addiction. It wasn't just one thing. There was a, a, a you know a handful of things that led me to that that point of heroin addiction. So what happened with me was, um, you know, my mum and dad they. They really tried everything for me. Um, you know, they took me to rehab. They took me on holiday. They took me to uh, Kettering Town near Peterborough, where 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 you live, where my family are from. My family are from Corby, um, and you know, I, I lived up there trying to do heroin deto- uh, detoxes, all that type of stuff, and none of it ever worked. I didn't really want to do it. I was doing it for them. What happened this time? Um, 
my best friend, a close friend of mine, really, my co-defendant, he passed away. And the very same day he passed away, I was rushed to hospital and I almost died. Um, this was during lockdown 2020. This is probably some people's worst year. It ended up being the best year of my life. When I woke up in hospital a couple of days later, I just knew in my heart, heart it was my time to change. I had a tag brace on. Um, I, was, I had a court date looming over me and I was definitely going to prison. And I just thought, I can't do this no more. I was up on the respiratory ward in uh, Heath, South Wales Hospital, Heath Hospital. And everyone around me was like 70 plus, all old men, old women. And I was 29, you know, young lad. And the doctor come up to me and said, your insides are worse than any of these here. You will die if you, if you leave this hospital and carry on. And at the time I couldn't leave. I, it, I think I was bedridden for like two, three weeks before I could even get out of bed. Um, and I was on a methadone script and I was on a high dose of methadone. I was on 90 mils. Because um, when I got rushed in um, and they knew I was, you know, using on top of my meth and all this stuff, the doctors from my, my, my drug clinic said to me, you can stay on a methadone script, but you're going to have to pick your meth up every single day, including weekends, or you have this other option. And they said, you will be one of the first people in Britain to try this. You, you will be a guinea pig, really. Um, and that is if you would take the option two, which is Bouvardal. And I looked at him and I was like, Bouvardal, what, what are you, what the fuck is this like, you know? Um, um, and, and obviously, I, I, like I said, I had this, this bargain with myself whilst I was in there that, you know, I really want to change. Please, God, give me this opportunity and I will turn my life around. Um, so when that guy came in and said, you can go back on your meth, I knew if I, if I took that option, I, I was contradicting everything I was saying. So I tried option two, which I thought would just, you know, after a week, I'd be back on heroin. I genuinely thought it wouldn't work. And for, for, for your people who don't know, Bouvardal is basically an injection that you put in your muscle, uh, which blocks opiates um, for a month, a whole month. So it's a substitute, the same as methadone, the same as Subutex. But with methadone and Subutex, it lasts 24 hours and you've got to go and pick up your script again. So you're basically a prisoner to it, you know. There's this, this saying, uh, you know, they're liquid handcuffs. That's what it is. Like, you, you can't do anything. Like, if you've got to go pick up uh, a medication that, if you don't take, will make you physically ill um, every day, then you're a prisoner to that, aren't you? You can't go on holidays. You, you know, you, if you want to go away for the weekend, you've got to speak to your doctors to make sure they give you like weekly takeouts, which is very hard, especially if you're using. So this Bouvardal, what it does is it gives you that freedom where you have this injection once a month and it slow releases into your muscle. But also the other difference with Bouvardal is with methadone, with Subutex, you can still use on top. You can still use heroin on top of methadone. You know, I would say... I'm not lying here, but like 75%, 80% of the people who go on to methadone only go on to it just to have an extra top-up dose, just to have a free buzz. I know people, this is how like pointless I see it sometimes, I know people who will smoke heroin in the morning to get on a bus to go pick up their methadone. So they're defeating the object of trying to get on something that's a substitute because they're still using the heroin. With the Subutex, that is something you take once a day. That is a blocker. With methadone, it's not. But with 
Subutex as a blocker. But with Subutex, again, it's a commodity. Um, the, the value within the prison system is massive. Um, so people on the streets are always trying to get you to, you know, they want to take your, your Subutex off you. If you go to a clinic or a pharmacy, you will have people who either got friends in the prison system, family members in the prison system, or they're going into prison themselves who will try and hassle you to buy your Subutex off you. Because out on the roads, a Subutex is £5. Within the prison system, it's £50. So it's, it's, it's you know, people are making money off it. They're not really using it to what it should be done. But with Bouvidal, you know, you can't do that. You have it in your muscle. That's it. For a month, you're done. You actually don't feel like you're on drugs as well. This is something that doesn't give you a buzz the same as any of these other drugs would. So, you know, I've had people, I've actually saw, when I done my Lad Bible interview, and I spoke about coming off drugs and going on to Bouvidal, some people were like, well, he's going on one drug to another drug. And, and this is where my, you know, this campaign, I really want to push out that we need to take away these taboos of, of people on medication. You know, people take medication for a bad back. People take medication for mental health. I, you know, I don't agree with most of it. If I could live a life with no medication, I would, you know. But I think people need to realize the lesser of the two evils. Three years ago, I was robbing everything. You couldn't have something pinned down. I was up and down the country, shoplifting really bad, uh, robbing off people. I was taking two, three hundred pounds worth a day of heroin and crack. Um, you know, I wasn't a nice person. And now, you know, I'm full time. I'm settled down with, with, with a beautiful, beautiful partner. You know, I've got my family back, got friends back. And I feel like I'm, I'm, I am somewhat ambitious and, you know, I want to do something with my life. So, you know, Bouvidal has changed my life massively. What a story. Um, I think there's something similar to be talked about with starting your own business or being an entrepreneur. And I had a bit of an ulterior motive for asking the question because I wanted to find the trigger that finally got you to make the decision to change and not go back. Um, and I know people who've tried to start a business and failed or wanted to quit their job because they don't like their boss or they're working a lot of hours and they're paying a load of tax, but something always stops them. Uh, and you had however many years of trauma and pain. I know people in their 30s and 40s and 50s who start their business thinking it's too late. So um, I started when I was... 27 because from the age of six I was raised by an entrepreneur but many people don't know where to start or what to do they just know that there's something else that they want whereas it was the opposite from me I my dad was the he was like Americans call people hustlers you know these people who hustle and grind well I mean my dad was the quintessential hustler um, and he could always, he was especially good when he got himself in a bit of trouble or it was hard or he got into a bit of debt. He could always pull himself out of a hole. And I saw that. Uh, in fact, he got me working age six in his pubs, bottling up and then doing the bar and then doing the restaurant all the way through till age 18. I preferred that to going to school. But then, oh, but Rob, you've got to get a job and you've got to get careers advice and you've got to go to university. And, you know, if you, if you want to get a job, you've got to get a degree. 
And this was friends, family, not my dad, society, all in my ear with all of this. So I went down that road and age 26.9, I was 50 grand in debt, had three crap jobs I couldn't hold down. Um, and I kind of lost who I was. And so you asked me before I threw it back at you, but the reason I got into starting my own business was because I'd always wanted to, but the system and the school system and society and what the do-gooders tell you you should do had trapped me for yeah. seven or eight years. It's very similar, isn't it? Like, you know, um, that, that, you know, is it too late? Is it too late? Is it not? It is very similar, entrepreneur and addiction, I suppose, because, you know, even now, two, three years, I am confident that I could be some sort of entrepreneur, you know, which is something I never would have thought before. Um, it's so fascinating, Rob. And, and what was your first kind of, let's say, business venture? What was that? Um, so I started part-time as an artist. So... I Art was one of the subjects I was pretty good at at school. And so while I was working, I worked for my dad twice, had a couple of shitty cleaning jobs and things like that. Mm. And while I was doing that in my mid-20s, I thought, well, maybe I could paint and see if I can sell some of my art. And I sold some, probably made a part-time living, but... Um, Maybe I was a bit too disruptive and modern for Peterborough. There's a lot of people would look at my art and think, yeah, this guy needs recovery. Out there. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> um, so I kind of in the back of my mind, I was like, right, this is something that's mine that I'm passionate about. But in the other side of me was like, this isn't London. This isn't going to work. So, but at least it got me starting my own thing. And then one of my gallery owners, um, who'd become a, like a little bit of a father figure mentor, you know, giving me um, just a bit of guidance when he knew I was down. Um, he said, look, there's this property meeting going on in, in Peterborough. You should go because, you know, property makes everyone rich. And, you know, I know you want to work for yourself one day, so you should get into property. And all that went through my head was I don't have any money. I don't want to be one of those yuppies. You know, I, mm. I, don't, I had a real sort of anti... I hated successful people, even though I wanted to be one. It was just like a weird manifestation of envy. Um, but I reluctantly went. Um, and this was December 2005. And uh, at the end, I met a guy there. And we stayed in touch. Two months later, he'd helped me get a job in a property business. Four months later, we bought our first property together and a year later we'd bought 20 together and then we quit that job um, and well actually I got us fired but that's another story <laughs> and and so my first proper venture in business part-time was artist which was almost like the dip your toe in the water but really my first proper business was um, property investing and it's funny we talk about that now because I've just had a property revalued that I own um, for 21.46 million. It's gone up to about wow. 2 million in the last 12 months. And that same property makes me 700,000 pound profit per year. So wow. a bit like you, three years down the line in recovery, you pinch yourself from where you were. 
Well, I started 50 grand in debt and I've got one property that's well, th probably yeah, worth this is half of Peterborough. <laughs> yeah, this is what I'm going to say. It's all about that leap of faith, isn't it? And just... How, how, what's going through your mind when you are in 60 grand worth of debt to go into a property investment like, you know? Because anyone in their right mind who is down that much money, whether whether we see it physically or it's in, you know, debts we have to pay off and we can kind of fob off for a bit. How can you take that leap of faith? What's going through your mind? Well, I mean, there's different ways to look at this, but if you think about it, every new day is a leap of faith, isn't it? Because we don't know what's coming tomorrow. So... Um, Every day is a new opportunity to try something. Every day is a new day to get out of your comfort zone. And if you fail or make a mistake, then the day after that is a day to get back on the horse and try again. So I think what happened was I got 50 grand in debt. I was really close to going personally bankrupt. So I probably, if I'm honest, felt like I didn't have much to lose anymore. And sometimes mm. that can actually be good because yeah. if you're comfortable, you've got stuff to lose. And I... Some of the people that I help, they're quite successful already. You know, they've got a, a 75 grand a year job. They've got a nice car. They've got a decent house. They've got a mortgage. They've got a kid or two. And actually for them, it's quite hard because they've got a lot to lose. So um, I didn't have much to lose, but then things were really bad. Maybe like, you know, you three years ago. So um, I just think that we underestimate as humans what we're capable of. And I think if anyone wants anything bad enough, they can achieve it. And if they're motivated enough, they'll work hard enough for it. And if the consequences of um, failure or non-success are big enough, then it is a given that they will be successful. Do you think the world we live in, I know some of the people you've interviewed, I, I, which I love, by the way, how... You know, you are very open to questioning the world, the way the way, way it's run. Do you think we are in, it is true we are indoctrinated to, to, to not believe in these things that we can achieve? Well, I don't know who runs the world and I don't know what the system is. But what I see in the school system, the tax system, in the way governments some dictators run nations, is what they want is compliant people that they can consume from. So most of the big corporations and entities and people and banks who seem to run the world see a human as a consumable. You know, we want to get them in debt so we can earn interest on them for the rest of their lives. We want to tax them so we can earn money on them for the rest of their lives. When they die, we want to tax them again and mm. take most of their m money from them. And we don't want them to, to argue or to, to challenge or question the system. And so, but, you know, because I teach a lot about money, which opens a lot of people's eyes to things they never really understood. You know, people mm. think that, you know, the banks are there to, to help us. The banks only want our money so they can make profit on it. They don't care about looking after our money. Even though legally you think you're insured, if there's a run on the bank, then you're not getting your money. Um, and what the bank want to do is lend your money out and invest it out. And what the government want to do is tax you as much as they can without getting voted out. Um, 
and, and yet people are like, oh yeah, but you know, the banks look after our money and the banks help us with our retirement. The banks don't <laughs> give a fuck about you. They don't care about you. They see you as something they can stick a needle in and suck the blood out of. So when people like me talk about there's another way, you can pay your tax last, not first. You can get your tax bill down. You can decentralize your assets so the government don't control them. None of this shit is gonna get taught in schools and universities because then we can't be a consumable for the system and the banks. And this goes on to my one question that I have for you. If you had the keys to the, let's say, educational system, what would be your five compulsory subjects? Money, 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 and money. (laughs) (laughs) I would would definitely teach about money and how it really works. By the way, I'm not anti having a job. I'm not anti having a safe, secure, living because by the way not everyone's made to be an entrepreneur because you need to take risks it's an up and down journey and you make loads of money and then you don't make loads of money for six months in lockdown i never took a penny i didn't have my regular paycheck so i'm I'm not one of the guys that you know mocks employment but if i ran the education system i'd be like right if you want safety security and public service go down the traditional route but if you want to be unique different you want to earn a lot of money you want to make a lot of difference in the world you want to express yourself then I would give people another route of education. That's one thing I'd do. The next thing is I teach about authenticity and uniqueness, i.e. us embracing each other as unique individuals, different people from Mm. different backgrounds with different races and creeds and colours, and we're all one human race. So that's the second thing I'd teach. I would teach much more about um, managing your own emotions because I believe if you can manage and master your own emotions, you master your life. And these emotions are strong in us. Jealousy, fear, envy, resentment, excitement, elation, um, arousal. All these emotions are so strong and we're never taught how to handle them. So I would definitely, you know, teach that. That'd be the third thing. The fourth thing would be how to agree respectfully and disagree respectfully. Because generally speaking, if we disagree with someone, um, we troll them on social media, we block them, we hate them. Um, we stand against them. The world becomes polarised and divided and we end up fighting and killing each other because we believe yes. different things. Managing your emotions. You know, we have these strong emotions. Fear, envy, jealousy, doubt, guilt, shame, elation, depression. And no one teaches us how to manage these, how to overcome these strong feelings and, and urges. So I definitely have some seminars and lessons on managing your emotions. Um, I would certainly, I'd have lessons every day where we had hardcore debates, but the goal was to debate as hard as possible and still remain good friends or have a good relationship with the person afterwards. Like disagree strongly, but don't make it personal. One of the big problems in the world at the moment is if we agree with someone, we like them, love them, pedestalize them. If we disagree with someone, we don't like them, disown them, put them down. And actually, the people you learn from the most are generally the people who have a different opinion, because you don't learn from anyone who has the same opinion as you, because you already have that opinion. So the fourth thing I would definitely teach a lot more about is um, trying to have hard, healthy discussion and debate to progress humanity and not make it personal. And then the fifth one... Um, mm. not, not algebra, no? No, definitely not algebra. Um, <laughs> I, 
I would make some kind of combat sport compulsory, but you could choose. Because I've changed my mind on this. You know, I'm a bit of a conflict avoider. So for many years of my life, I always managed to avoid fights by placating and pleasing and having a bit of a gift of the gab and being able to talk my way out and around. And that's one way. But the world's getting more dangerous and we're getting closer to wars and in some ways humanity is regressing. So I think whether it's boxing or jujitsu or mixed martial arts or some kind of hardcore combat self-defense as a sport and an art, I'd make that compulsory for everyone. Rob, I, I, I totally agree with you there. Um, I'm six foot two, six foot three. Um, I can be intimidating when I want to be, but I was a conflict avoider as well. I was someone who had the gift of the gab and would, you know, I'm not a bully and probably someone had to hit me four or five times before I would start swinging. That's who I was. I don't know where I got it from because my brother, everyone else, they're game as fuck. Like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> but I've just been that person and I don't know why. But, you know, I regret it now. Like, in, I'm actually thinking about taking something up. I definitely agree that is something we should do. And is it because you've changed your mind because of this Samuel Leeds fight? Then? Ah, you it. knew you were going to get that in there. <laughs> um, I'd made up my mind up before that because I used to do a bit of kickboxing back in the day and I've done a couple of the more traditional arts like China and Qigong. Um, but I stopped them in my mid-twenties when I started a business. It wasn't intentional, it's just business became the obsession. Fine. And I'd made up my mind probably a few months before this Samuel Leeds fight that, you know what, um, more for my kids really than me. You know, my kids are nice, well-mannered, and if they get picked on, that's not going to go well. And I'm, I'm, I am quite scared for my kids and my kids' kids about how dark the world is becoming in some ways. So I thought, well, if I want to get them into karate and boxing and whatever other art, um, I need to be doing it myself. Because how can you be a role model for that if you're not even doing it yourself? So mm. I started to you know, get back into fitness and training again. And then almost simultaneously, Samuel Leeds called me out for a fight. And I just thought, well, perfect timing. I'll take your money, be like candy off a baby. Um, I will bob and weave and outclass and outbox him and I'll take the money and I'll give it to good causes and I'll get fit in the process. You seem very confident about it and it's good to see. Um, why did this happen, just in a, in a nutshell? Like, what, what, how did this fight come about? Because right. you are very similar in the sense of entrepreneurs. Where did it come from? Yeah, so in a nutshell, about three years ago, randomly on a podcast, I was asked, you and Samuel Leeds in a fight, who wins? And I said, well, me. I mean, who's not going to say themselves? I'm not going to say yourself. him. And I just sort of said, well, you know, I have got some old school experience, even though it was like 20 years ago. It's just an innocent, random question. And Samuel found that, and then um, we did a collab together. And the first question he asked was, I understand you can take me in a fight. Will you put your money where your mouth is? And he just called me out. So, so I just said, um, absolutely, yes. 50 grand down, let's do it. He, it looked like he wriggled. He tried to wriggle a bit. He tried to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, let's get our team talking and let's get our lawyers involved. And I said, no, 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 50 grand, let's shake on it now. Yeah, 50 we cash, yeah. We, we shook on it. Then we had a um, little press conference and he upped the bet to 100 grand. Um, and, and that's how it came about. And what, we've sold 
nearly 1,200 tickets. We've only got 1,600 tickets. You know, considering oh. I'm not Jake Paul and he's not Tommy Fury, that's not bad going. Well, it's the way of the world now. It's, it is, this is the future, isn't it? It's more of influencers or public people fighting rather than these professional fighters. This weekend, friend of mine, uh, quite a, a, a fluent guest, really, uh, Joe Cordina, world champion, he's fighting this weekend. But he does not get nowhere near the respect, the the money, or or even the views that someone like Joe, uh, Jake Paul, KSI, even some of these now like TikTokers and stuff on like the Kingpin promotions and stuff. It's 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 amazing, and 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 I'm all for it because you know if the more people who can who can you know be successful or something like this, the better the world should be you know, technically speaking. So when is it? It's in June, is it? 7th, is it? June or July? July the 1st. July Brentwood, the 1st. Essex. Um, the website is Morvi Leeds, if anyone wants to try and get a ticket. Um, yeah. Just so you know, I have no desire to be a Jake Paul or a Logan Paul or a, a YouTuber or influencer boxer. Like you said, hats off to, the, off to them. They're disruptive. I feel a bit sorry for hardcore old school boxers who've trained blood, sweat and tears, but hopefully yeah. they can learn from the modern promoters because really what these YouTubers are is brilliant promoters. Um, I'm doing a one-off fight. I'm knocking the guy out silly. I'm, out, I'm schooling him in front of a lot of people. I'm raising 130 for charity, 130 grand, and then I'm retiring. So I just want I can, you to know, no, I have I can no see delusions. No, I can see this being a more V3, one, two, and three, I no, do. You know, uh, no, one. <laughs> I know we're, we're in a bit strapped for time. There's, um, you know, there's a couple of other things I want to quickly fly through. Investable qualities. It's a video I've watched a few times off you. Can you go through the investable qualities? Yeah, so um, people think you need money to invest. Um, whilst money makes money, money is one of the slowest ways to make money. So there are much quicker ways to make money. Number one, you have a disruptive or valuable product or service. So an investable quality in someone is coming up with a good idea, number one. Um, number two would be your ethic. So if you get up earlier and finish later than the average nine to fiver, you immediately position yourself as someone who is worth investing in. So you've got idea, you've got ethic, um, then you've got your network. So um, I know a lot of people who know a lot of people. And I also know a lot of people who, the way they make their living is by connecting people together. So you might have friends and family or extended network of people who like, for example, I've interviewed a lot of billionaires on my podcast. Um, so your ability to connect people. The next one would be your ability to build relationships with people. Um, I always use this example in my property seminars. I say, let's say you've got 100 grand, let's play this game. You've got 100 grand and you're gonna invest it in someone. But it's, you know, it's your only 100 grand, so you need this to work. Do you pick A, the person who's super credible, done loads of deals, clearly made money, but you don't trust them and you don't like them. Or B, the person who's a beginner, not really got any credibility, but you believe in them, you trust them, there's something about them and you'd back them and you like them. Which one do you pick? 
Most people, 90, 95% of people, pick the person with um, no experience, but likeable, credible. So people think you need a load of experience, but experience with someone who is arrogant or cold um, or transactional actually doesn't make them that investable. Whereas someone who might not have a lot of experience but has got that relationship building quality, um, I've seen it time and time again. Because if you think about it, every winner was once a beginner, every master was once a disaster. And anyone who's borrowed millions, they had to borrow their first 10 grand. You know, I've raised hundreds of millions for property deals. um, And I raised my first 30 grand off my business partner, Mark Homer, in 2006. And I was still in debt. So he clearly didn't look at me and go, yeah, Rob's made loads of money. Rob's got loads of credibility. He looked at me and went, Rob's a hustler. Um, Rob works harder than most. Rob's pretty good at building relationships. You know, I I believe him. Uh, I trust him. And and these are investable qualities a lot of people don't talk about. What is your uh, daily routine then? Like, What time are you? What time are you sleeping? I normally get up between 5.30 and 6 a.m. I get my Costa coffee with four shots in it. Uh, and then I sit down from that 6 a.m.-ish time till about 8.30 a.m. And I get my key result area, income generating task work done. I go through my um, emails and messages and make sure that my PA's got all the stuff she needs and my VA's got all the stuff he needs and my MD's got all the stuff that she needs to be able to you know, run my companies through the day. 8.30, I'll do content. 9 till 10, I'll train. Um, 10 till 12, I'll do content. 12 till 3, once to twice a week, I'll do meetings. And then from 3 o'clock onwards, I I usually don't work. At the moment, because of the fight I've got coming up, I'm obviously filling a lot of that time. I mean, I'm not going to reveal my training plan here publicly, am I? I'd be stupid to do that. um, You know, I am doing a couple of little sessions a week with the skipping rope just to make sure I'm fit for the fight. (laughs) No, hey, can can we stream that? Can we watch that then on the streaming Um, platform? We, we aren't oh, planning to. The, the only way we'll stream it is if we sell out the tickets and we've got demand. And at the moment, we've got 10 weeks left and we've sold nearly 1,200 of the 1,600. So actually, there's a chance we will sell it out. We haven't really promoted it that hard. Um, so I couldn't... I, well, it's, it's out there. It is out there, you know. I, I've seen it um, all the way in Cardiff. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, it's obviously out there, you know. Um, I'm sure you, look, you sold your tickets. You're happy with that. You know, we, as long as you got some footage of knocking him out, I think that would be great. <laughs> Don't you worry. But, uh, That'll be in slow motion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, f- f- final thing as well. Um, what's your perception of a heroin addict? My perception of a heroin addict is someone who probably didn't have a good upbringing from their parents. So probably weren't in a loving relationship with their parents or were born into a a tough, difficult area of the world to live in. And unfortunately, probably spent time with the wrong people who were probably going down the wrong roads themselves and um, made a series of bad decisions to get to the point. That they would be the three elements my naive perception would be. 
Yeah, um, I would say the first, like, again, every single one you have said there is a factor and has been a factor. For myself, no, not the first two, but the other two, yes. Um, but it could happen to anyone, Rob. Well, I think anything can happen to anyone. And one thing I really try and work on is non-judgment. Um, because, you know, if you judge someone else, put a mirror in front of yourself and look at all the imperfections <laughs> in yourself first. And only go and judge others when you've perfected area, every area of your life, which I absolutely haven't. I just see so much pain and trauma in humans because they didn't have an unconditional love upbringing. You know, they've got a messed up relationship with their mum or their dad or their mum or their dad died or they weren't there or they got abused or whatever. And I, I you know, I see, you know, you can't just blame someone for being broke or blaming someone from, for being an addict by saying, oh, well, they were weak. There's so much more to it than that. But I am also sure down that line as well, they probably took some wrong turns and made some bad decisions, but they were probably already down that road anyway. Just like if I took the opposite, um, Callan, imagine someone's born into wealth, they're taught entrepreneurship from an early age, you know, they're connected up with an amazing network of people, they're always told that they can do it, they're always told that they're a winner and a champion. On the upside of that, those people are probably likely to do well in life. Yeah, but then again, like it's, it is that it is that uh, thing you just said that this can happen to anyone because I find the cycle of people who have good parents kind of rebel. They're disruptors. They don't want to live that life. They want to walk on the green grass. They want to do the naughty things. Yeah. What I've also seen, you know, my, my parents give me everything. I was never abused as a child. You know, they give me anything I wanted, if not the next best thing. But... I was sheltered and I wanted to live that life. I wanted to see that at the side. On the other hand, I had friends who had holes in their clothes and didn't, didn't really have much money. They've now got a mortgage, a good business, a wife. So I think it also does go in cycles. Yeah, I agree. I think that, um, <laughs> I think everyone's situation is different. Yeah. And I, I also agree that there are movers, shakers, change makers and rule breakers both in the negative and in the positive. Um, and that's one of the reasons why that's the kind of sub-headline of my show, Disruptors. Movers, yeah. shakers, you know, game shakers, sh game changers, troublemakers. You can be a troublemaker, good, as well as a troublemaker, bad. You can be a disruptor, bad. good, as well as a disruptor, bad. Hey, Rob, honestly, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Really have. Um, good luck on the first. Um, hopefully we can get you down one day or vice versa. Um, but yeah, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. We'll definitely hook up again. Um, and remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Stay central. <laughs> Cheers, my friend. <laughs>